Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. All right, are you ready for the message? Are you ready for the word? Title of my message is The Bold and the Beautiful. Did not know it was a soap opera title till this morning. So I'm going to redeem the title. Okay, uh, it is going to be have a new power to it. Um, we are in Acts 2. And in Acts 2, you can break up this chapter in three parts. The first, about 13 chapters, it's shown us the breath of God. The Holy Spirit falling down, it's his it's breath. And it's a beautiful thing. The church literally is birthed. This is the first church service. The first church, the first sermon is preached. The church literally is birthed in Acts 2. It's an amazing thing. Um, so the breath comes, and right after the breath comes, comes the boldness of God. Yeah. We need bold Christians today. We don't need um, little tiptoeing Christians, Christians afraid to speak up. No, we need Christians actually standing out, not standing out with um, arrogance, but standing out in a different type of love, standing out in a different type of kindness. So there's a new boldness, okay? And then after the boldness, there's this new beauty. It literally says that the church looked good in Acts 2. It says that uh, people liked the way they looked. Uh, it said they found favor with people. The Greek word, it's interesting, there's two Greek words for good. One uh, of the meanings for the Greek word is that it would taste good. Like, have you ever served something to somebody? Like, I know it doesn't look good, but if you tried it, it's delicious. You know what I'm talking about? You know, or everybody's like, hey, you should smell this. Why would I smell that? You know what I'm saying? Like, um, trust me, it's going to smell delicious. Now, the, the church's description of good was not only does it taste good, but it says the church looked good from the outside. Wow. That, that, that the church in Acts 2 was a beautiful thing, and the world was attracted to it. Can I ask you a question? What happened? <laughs> what happened to the church? If you ask the world today, does the church look good to you? Does it look beautiful? Does it look attractive? Do you want to be a part of it? People are like, I don't want to go there. I heard they're mean, judgmental. You know, uh, one of the um, uh, commentaries said, the church would do a lot of good if it just did more Bonnie things. Now my commentaries are from like 1700s. Bonnie is a word that means beautiful. I found that I had to Google it. The church would be way better if we just did more beautiful things for people. Yeah. And the reality is that some of you are like, well, I do that. Well, good. We need the whole church to do that. Some of you are like, I'm good with boldness. But you're not good with beauty. And the reality is, for you to be good with beauty and good with boldness, you need to have his breath. And the question we're asking ourselves today is, how in the world did a church of 120 ragtag uh, disciples who had no economic power, cultural power, military power, financial power, how did they change the world? And if you read any books on the early church, you know, Richard Stark writes a great one on the birth of the early church. But if you read anything on the early church, you'll find a handful of things. You'll find out one of the things that uh, set the um, Christians apart. Because reality is there wasn't like just one religion trying to vie for the world. There was 20 plus, 30 plus religions trying to woo people and saying this is the way you're supposed to live your life. It was a polytheistic society, a lot of religions. But for some reason, Christianity literally rose to the top and turned the world upside down started with 120, now we're around 2 billion, I would say it worked out pretty good. Can we agree with that? So if you just read the, the book in Richard Stark, he'll share some things. He'll say, you know, one thing that made the, the Greeks and the Romans and the Greco-Roman culture take notice of the Christians is they died really well. It's a really weird thing to say, but they died fantastically. Like they'd be being persecuted in a coliseum and they would die in a way where like they would be hugging each other and rejoicing and saying, I can't wait to see my father's face. I can't wait to see my savior. And then a lion would kill him. And Romans would be like, that was some weird way to die, if you ask me. You know, like that, were, they, were they hugging and celebrating as a lion was? What kind of person dies like that? They died really well. When they would be crucified and stoned to death, they would say things to people, I have longed for this moment to look like my Savior, to suffer like him. Oh, I've longed. Oh, Lord, forgive them as they kill me, Lord. Oh, do not hold them accountable. Lord, bless them. As they're killing them, they're seeing somebody pray them and bless them. Walk away. Did you just see what happened? I was chucking a rock at that guy to kill him, and he was blessed. Man, those Christians, are. it, it messed them up. It made them ask questions. They died differently. They don't look as death as the end. They look at it as the beginning of glory. It's an amazing thing, that this, this early church and the way they looked at death, because they knew there was a new glory. Another thing that they did really well was they were the most inclusive group on the planet. They were like, come one, come all. Ladies at this time were not elevated in any religion on earth. 
And Christianity came along and says, you are a co-laborer. You are a new creation. You have the same worth as a man. Let's go change the world together. How in the world can you think that was, uh, this religion was built by a man? Every man-made religion is the opposite. Men are here. Women are here. Jesus comes in and says, no, this is the way I've knitted you. You guys are co-laborers. You guys are supposed to work together. So it was inclusive, not only inclusive to just females, it was inclusive to rich and poor. All religions at this time, there was either like, well, this is the religion for the rich people. And that'd be the Sadducees or another single one. Oh, this is a religion for the poor people. Christianity was like, no, this is for everybody, rich and poor. This is for every like race. Because even uh, religions were always to a certain type of race. No, this is for all people. So it was the most inclusive. And, th- and that freaked people out. Another thing, if you just looked at the early church and, and maybe why it was uh, a big part of revival, is because they cared more than anybody else. Their empathy was on a whole nother level. They mourned when you mourned. They hurt when you hurt. Uh, the, the Jews took care of the Jews at this time. The Greeks took care of the Greeks. The Samaritans took care of the Samaritans. The Romans took care of the Romans. The Christians took care of all of them. I don't care what you are. You're one of my brothers and sisters. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to give to you. I mean, these are beautiful things. So if that was the three reasons, we should just start a social club. Those are symptoms of something that happened in Acts 2. You don't die well because somebody says die well. You die well because you experience something that the world has never experienced. You, you're not inclusive just because somebody told you to be inclusive. Actually, that's the opposite of our nature. You're inclusive because somebody else included you when you shouldn't have been included. His name is Jesus. You have an empathy and a care because the reality is, is that you have a love the world's never experienced because you've experienced a love you love different than the world's ever seen. And so in Acts 2, that's what happens. If, if you drill down past all the symptoms, you'll get to this one moment in Acts that is the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, and they call it the day of Pentecost. Under all the layers of why the church is great and why the church is bold, the foundation of it is the breath of God. It's the presence of God. Are you ready for the message? Are you ready for the word? Come on, will you bow your heads? Oh, God, we love you. Oh, we need you. Lord, I declare that I will say whatever you want me to say. God, I, I, I stand here and simply say, may your word do what it's supposed to do. May my words fall to the floor and your words soar. God, I come against religious Christianity that's just so critiquing of everything. God, I come against apathetic Christianity that just doesn't care about anything. And God, I pray that this church would be passionate about your word, passionate about your presence, passionate about the lost. Oh, Lord, would you wake us up today to the privilege it is to turn to you and live for you. And everybody said? All right, turn your Bibles to Acts 2. Acts 2. Acts 2, 1. Here we go. We're talking about the bold and the beautiful. I might call it, you know, new title. I hate it. The blueprint for revival. How's that? Okay. I can't keep on saying a soap opera now. It's a galley. Um, it's also the blueprint for a revival. Whichever title you like better, let's just keep going. Uh, Acts 2, chapter 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Stop. I only got one verse, but I just got to stop right here. Is it important for us to meet together, Tyler? Yes. Revival falls on a group of people chasing after God. Christianity is not an individualistic thing. It is a group thing. It is a body, a fellowship, a, sto- a building being built of living stones. Um, can I tell you something real quick? Revival, you don't plan it, by the way. It's not like, all right, everybody, Tuesday at 7 a.m., we're going to have revival. You're going to show up at church at 7.15. I'm going to press the revival button, and you all are going to get revived. You're going to experience God's presence. Fire is going to come from your head. It's going to be awesome. Planned Tuesday, 7.15. Don't know why I'm talking like that. It's not like, you'll be living in a van down by the river, all right? It's like, relax, all right? But that's my planning revival voice, okay? So you don't plan for, I don't know what that was. You don't plan for, I just was going to do a different voice and that's what came. Okay, so you don't plan for revival. You don't manufacture revival. But in Acts 2.1, we see you prepare for revival. There is preparation for revival. And if you could just understand what the Bible says about who we are and, and what the church is supposed to be, can you picture real quick an altar with me? Let's go back to the Old Testament because the church is the new altar. Don't you know you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your life is not your own. It's not your life. It's not your body. It's God's body. It's his life. And if you would submit to him, your life to him, you would have a way better life than what you're doing with your own life. But anyways, let's keep going. And so, so your life is an altar. And if you're going to create an altar in the Old, uh, Old Testament, there's two things that how you create an altar. One is you need to clear some room. 
So whenever they didn't have temples, they were just out somewhere. They're like, hey, make some room, clear some room. And for the church to have a revival real quick, you need to make some room. You need to clear some room in your schedule. You need to clear some room in your heart to love again. You need to clear some room in your heart maybe to start believing things in the word again that you don't believe. You need to clear some room. And the second part is, is that there needed to be a sacrifice. God's fire always fell on a sacrifice. And so it wasn't like the early church was out playing some golf. And as Peter hit one right down the middle of the fairway, God's presence fell. And Peter's like, oh, I guess we're having a revival right now. No, it was them saying, God, I choose you. Over the whole world, I sacrificed my time, my, my life, my energy, and I'm going to seek you. 120 said, I will sacrifice, and that day 3,000 benefited because of it. I'm just looking for 120 today. Way more in this room than that, but I'm just looking for 120 to say, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm going to come to team prayer and pray. I'm going to come to pre-service and pray. I'm going to serve in kids ministry. I'm going to serve on the team. I'm going to start building the kingdom of God. Because when Christians start sacrificing, God starts breathing. So there's two things you see in Acts 2 that start revival. It's a blueprint. It's people clearing some room and people sacrificing. It's amazing. Can I just tell you real quick? Attending church is not a sacrifice. Okay. I did it, God. I came in and I sat down for an hour and 15. It went a little longer, an hour 25, just for you, Jesus. No, no, no. There's just something about our society that just makes us feel so self-centered. And I'm going to touch on that in just a second, but your life will never be fulfilled if it's centered around you. We, we use this term in gospel-centered discipleship is that you should be Christ-centered. And if I could just be honest, whatever your life orbits around is going to lead you, control you, and either drain you or fulfill you. And so if you are centered around yourself, you're always thinking about self. What's self going to do today? What's best for self? I love me some self. Uh, people better celebrate self. I love me some self. Ooh, look at that self. Oh, I love myself. Oh, I put a nice, nice polo on today. Mm, good job, self. If that's you, it'd be a very sad, sad life. Now, if your life orbits around your kids, what are my kids doing today? I love my kids so much. I love my kids more than anything else. I'm going to take my kids everywhere they want to go. My life, literally my whole schedule is about my kids. I love my kids. I love my kids. I love my kids. My kids moved out. My life sucks. <laughs> you orbit around, your, around kids, it's going to literally not bless your marriage. It's not going to bless people. It's not even going to bless your kids. Your kids were not built to be worshipped, and they weren't built to be uh, put at the center. You're, you are not setting them up to win. If you put your career at the center, I could go all day. Sports, you know, you get it. Uh, I love my career. Da, da, da. Okay, you get it. Okay, okay let's keep going. Okay. <laughs> There's just something about a church that says, Jesus, you are at my center. Yeah. I wake up, God, what do you want me to do today? How do I love today? What should my schedule look like today? How should I respond today? You start doing that, watch what happens to your soul and watch God breathe on your life. So that's just Acts 2.1. We're going to go verse by verse. We'll be out of here in a little bit. Okay, here we go. Uh, Acts 2.2. 2. Suddenly, so after they prepared, I love how it says suddenly. They were in there for a while. They were in there for a while. I don't, want you, don't get it twisted. You're like, Lord, I start praying. Boom, suddenly. No, but as they prayed, out of the blue, then his presence fell. Right. It says, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. So it wasn't wind. It says it was like wind. It was like something happened. I, when, I, when I got saved, when the Lord changed my life, I walked into my bedroom. My friends had been praying for me, and I felt this presence of God come over my life, and it felt a little bit like this, and I started weeping and crying, and it changed my life forever. So they're trying, how do I describe this present? It felt like some wind. It felt, felt like something happened to me. So they said it felt like wind. Then what looked like flames of tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present, uh, present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. It's interesting. Uh, it's called the book of Acts, but on the street in the early church, it was called the, the gospel of the Holy Spirit. Even by just chapter 13, the Holy Spirit was referenced 40 times because the church was birthed with the breath of God. So they're like, you got the breath yet? You got the Holy Spirit yet? You, hold on. Before we go, have you experienced the Holy Spirit? I, I get it. You got, you got boldness and truth, but do you have his presence yet? And so over and over again, just by chapter 13, 40 times. So, so when people read like, oh, this is the good news about the Holy Spirit that's going to help me in my life. That's going to give me power and joy. Give me things that I can, give me a power that I can have in my life that can overcome things that I can never overcome on my own. Another uh, thing it was called was the gospel of the resurrection. Because all the disciples talked about was the Holy Spirit and the resurrection. Resurrection should not be talked about once a year at Easter. It's the cornerstone of our faith. 
if God can empty the grave, he can do something in your life. And so, so uh, they say the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there was a devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem where they heard a loud noise. Everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? These people are from, all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking our own native languages. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other, stop. I'm just defining some things about revival real quick. So God can do whatever he wants to do to revive a region or a nation or a world. And at this moment, he gave the disciples the gift of speaking in different languages. So it would be like me in Germany, and just out of the blue, I just start speaking perfect German. Ich habe viele Geld, du bist sehr hübsch. That's all I know in German. It says, I have lots of money. You are so fine. Okay? Um, I learned it when I was uh, single. Okay? That's all I had. I was just ready. If I ever met a German girl, du bist der hübsch. Ich habe viel Geld. You know? That's all I got. You know? Um, but instead of saying that, I'd be actually speaking the gospel in German. Okay? Maybe like, you know, if there's French people, I just speak the gospel in French. Like, God gave the disciples this abnormal gift at this moment, this amazing gift to speak in other languages. Now, when I uh, got saved and started following the Lord, I went to a charismatic church. So I always pictured revival as a charismatic revival because most charismatics be- uh, would, would believe or they just kind of are bent to because it's all they hear is the only type of revival you see is a revival that is marked by signs and wonders. But if you look back over the last 2,000 years, you know, they call them awakenings or revivals. Some revivals were marked by signs and wonders, but some were not marked by signs and wonders. They were marked by holiness. Even in the book of Acts, you'll see some not marked by signs and wonders, just by holiness. I love that people go, oh, God's love. He loves me. I can do whatever I want. No, no. The Bible says God is love four times. So he is love. God is love. But in the Bible, it also says God is holiness 400 plus times. So maybe just maybe you should get to know his holiness. His holiness will bring wholeness in your life. His holiness will actually set you apart to live the life you were called to live. And so some revivals were actually marked by holiness where, where whole cities were swept and sin was unprofitable. Literally, like, like brothels were empty. Um, drugs were not being able to be able sold anymore. Different revivals were marked by different things. I always thought, like, well, God, do you use a certain denomination for revivals? Can I just give you real quick just, just a little, little thing so you can just open your mind to whatever God wants to do in this region, okay? Uh, in Korea, the revival, you know what God used? Primarily the Presbyterian Church. And the Presbyterian Church really is, like, big on teaching the doctrine. Bam. So God in Korea for revival, he used the Presbyterian Church. Africa in the early 1900s was about 5 to 10% Christian. Now it's over 50% of Christian. So they've had revival pockets all over. One of the revivals in South Africa, God used the Anglican Church to revive South Africa, okay? And then in the Latin America countries, God used the charismatic church. So let's just take all of our cool little badges off that I'm this and I'm that, and God used this, and how about we toss it and say, God, you can use me in any way you want. God, sometimes people ask me, so you a charismatic church? No. Oh, so you're a fundamentalist church? No. Okay, so then you're a liberal church? No. What are you? I'm just a church, man. Like, we're the church. Like, we believe in the power of God. We, we believe in the doctrine of God. Like, like, yeah, we believe in loving people. We believe in grace. Like, like I don't, don't put that tag on the house. God didn't put that tag on the house. Mankind's been putting names on things. I'm so nervous for how long this is going to go. Oh, no. Oh, no. All right. Let's keep going. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk. That's all. So the Holy Spirit comes on the church, fire of God. The church is coming to life. We're about to see 3,000 saved on this day. If you know, you know the book of Acts, a couple days later, another 2,000 get saved. It's an amazing thing to watch. But as the Holy Spirit falls on the church, the world, the way they describe the church at this moment is, these people are drunk. And I never understood why. Where they walk around like, hey, hey, you, you. Jesus loves you. Okay, bye. You know, or hey, you. <laughs> ah, just start crying. I've been around a lot of drunk people. There's different ways they do it, okay? <laughs> so I was just picturing every drunk person I've seen in my life. In high school, college days, like, whoa. Like, so like, what they, were they doing that? No. That's not what was happening. I want to show you what the breath of God does in your life. And it may make you look a little drunk. Because the world, basically, when they see somebody with that much confidence, because if I could just break down, I'm going I'm to hop around. Can I hop around a little bit? I got to because the time is. Um, the breath of God, when it comes into your life, it's going to change everything about you. The way you see yourself, 
the way you see people and the way you see the world. There's three things that we see here that I want to unpack what the breath of God does. The first thing is the breath of God empowers you. It gives you a strength that you didn't have before. Now, one of the things we could call this is we could call this liquid courage because that's what they call alcohol. So you drink alcohol, liquid courage. You start telling girls you had a crush on uh, that you never could have told when you were sober. Girl, I love you. We should get married. You've never asked me on a date. I know. I'm drunk. And I, go, I don't care right now. You just need to know. Let's talk tomorrow. Pass out, okay? So, so alcohol, liquid courage, okay? The Bible says do not be drunk on wine, but be influenced by the Spirit. Why would the Bible connect those two? Why would the Bible talk about being drunk and being influenced by the Spirit? Alcohol is a depressant. It makes you dumber. Turns off all the things when you shouldn't say that to the girl. But because you are depressed, you know, the depressant comes in, you're like, I feel bold for some reason. No, you're dumber right now, man. I just have this feeling she's going to love me too. No, 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 you're dumber right now, man. And he goes out there and speaks his love, and you know, that, was, that was alcohol speaking. Okay, boom. So it, it makes you see things because you've become dumber. The Holy Spirit, when it comes in your life, it has you see things, but not because you become dumber. It's because your life becomes more clear, and you get empowered with a clarity that you've never seen before. You start telling people that God loves them that you never would have said before. The, the, the thing about alcohol is it makes you less clear. The thing about the Holy Spirit makes you more clear. And when clarity comes into your life, the Holy Spirit empowers you with a vision for your life that when people say like, man, what kind of person has that kind of focus, that kind of thing? Are you on something? What kind of person has that kind of drive, that kind of clarity, that kind of boldness to just speak? God loves you. God like, what kind of person makes that kind of beautiful uh, generosity act with finances? What kind of person does that kind of thing? That person must be drunk or high because they're doing things I would never do when I'm sober. No, you're doing things you'd never do because you haven't encountered the Holy Spirit yet. You encounter the Holy Spirit, you'll do things you never would have done before. The first thing the breath does is it gives you a vision for your life that you never would have had before. A vision for how you see yourself to operate and how you see to treat people. And the way that you would treat the world. Oh, may the Holy Spirit help us with that. Second thing is the Holy Spirit empowers us. I love this. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring wind, and it filled the house when they were sitting. Came in to empower them. The, the breath of God. I, I, um, when I was a young kid, there was this fable. I didn't really like it a lot. Uh, it was called Three Little Piggies. Uh, I'll make it quick. You guys know it probably. If you don't know it, you lived on a rock. But anyways, um, the Three Little Piggies uh, lived in straw, lived in sticks, and lived in brick. And they built it to protect themselves from the wolf. It really is plagiarism from the, uh, I think it's like Matthew 7, Mark 7, excuse me, about the building your house on a rock. Uh, because when the storm comes, it'll blow down the house. And so somebody wrote a fable that's like the same thing credit to the Bible. But anyways, the story of the fable is that the piggy that built the brick house, the wolf couldn't blow it down. And if you know the story, it's like the wolf came up to the straw house and he huffed and he puffed and he blew the house down, piggy dead. And then second one, huffed and puffed, sticks down, piggy dead. Huffed and puffed, uh, piggy lives. So, so it's a really weird thing for a kid to read like, oh, that's weird. Oh, okay. Thanks for the story, teacher, you know, second grade. Um, so I, I, I always like the story in the sense of like, okay, I, I got to make sure I build the right thing in my life, blah, blah. I like that part. But the thing that bothered me forever was I did not believe that there was any wolf that could have that kind of breath to blow anything down. So like, I, I didn't watch cartoons as a kid. All right, I just didn't. I watched Sports Center growing up. I watched like, like on my ninth birthday, my mom said, what movie do you want to go see? Terminator 2, okay? Like I was, I was a weird little kid, okay? Um, my parents weren't saved, so all we watched were like radar movies. So I got trained up on radar movies. I'm still getting clean. Okay, anyways, um, uh, God's still sanctifying this brain. Um, uh, so so like, like little kid stuff always bothered me when, like, when it wasn't believable, you know? But now my favorite movies are Marvel, so maybe I've reverted, but whatever, okay? Um, go Hulk, you know? Um, anyways, so... Um, so as I got older, though, I almost reverted in the sense of I started believing that if I huffed and I puffed, I could blow things down. And I thought that if I huffed and I puffed, I could make my own great marriage. If I huffed and I puffed and I, and I really <laughs> tried to breathe on things, I could make a great uh, career. If I huffed and I puffed, I want to talk to the ones that are hurt in the house right now. I was so wounded by people in my life. I, I grew up in an abusive home. Uh, I, I mean, I, I could share stories, but that's for another time. I don't got time. But I was literally just suffered some things in my life that caused pain that went to the depth of my heart that I thought nobody could fix. So I'd huff and I puff and try to fix it myself. And the reality is, is I could never fix it. There have been things that I struggled with, with you could say addiction-wise. If you're a person in the house and you struggle with addiction, lust, anything like that, you've huffed and you puffed and you said, why can't I get over this? I've tried everything. 
Because your breath isn't strong enough to conquer that addiction. Your breath isn't strong enough to cover that wound. Your breath isn't strong enough to create a great marriage. Just wait. Just like on a run, you're eventually going to run out of oxygen, and then you're wondering why your marriage isn't great. Here's the reason why, is you haven't allowed God to breathe on it. We have... I believe in practicals. If you struggle with stuff and you need accountability, get accountability. I believe in practicals. But give the Holy Spirit a shot to breathe on your addiction. Give the Holy Spirit a shot to breathe on lust and say, watch what I do when I rest on your life. I will change your appetite. I will change your nature. I will change the way you see the world and see girls. Let me rest on your life and breathe on your life. The ones that are hurting, instead of just saying, okay, I'm going to go to a group and talk about it, or I'm going to drink something, get rid of that pain, give the Holy Spirit a shot to breathe on the wound and bind things and heal things that you never thought could be healed. This is what the breath of God does. He heals things that never could be healed. So the breath of God in revival will heal things, and trust me, the world wants that. So the breath empowers. Second thing I love to, I just want to say is George Whitfield. There's something about all the revivalists that they knew. If you read their journals, he said in one of his journals, and George Whitfield, the famous preacher probably of the Great Awakening, led the Wesley Brothers to the Lord, which is the Methodist movement, preached in Wall, uh, Wall Street, you know, a ton of New York got saved, like ridiculous revival. Savannah, George, all over the place. You read his journals, and he would write, I was struggling for 30 minutes. Just a terrible sermon. And then he'd write, but... At that moment, God's presence and breath fell, and everything changed. George Whitfield knew that a talk did not mean anything. Only when God breathed is when something happened. And so all the revivalists were always contending, and they contended what was called the unction. They wanted the unction, the presence of God. It was an old word that they would use, and I think the old word needs to become new again in the church. Your marriage needs unction. It doesn't need more books and more reading. Sure, have some practicals, but it needs some more unction. Your, your kids need unction. They need the presence of God on their life. Come on, your career needs unction. This church, it needs unction. It needs the presence and the fire of God to rest on it. Second thing we see with the breath is the breath gives you purpose. The breath gives you purpose. Acts 2, 3, then what looked like flames of tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Ooh, do you realize what that means? If you, if you read the whole Bible, it's probably going to jump out to you. Maybe not. If you read commentaries, it for sure will jump out to you, okay? The fire of God resting on them. Can we just go back to the Old Testament again? Because they knew exactly what this represented, and it was a big deal. If you look at the Old Testament, guess what God was all the time? The fire of God. When he appears to Abraham in his dream, it makes the covenant that I'm committed to you no matter what. Even if you fail, I will, I will die for your failures. The ultimate covenant, guess what he came in? Fire. Moses, when he speaks to Moses, what is coming? a burning bush. He comes in fire. Hey, Moses, I'm going to give you a purpose. And your purpose is going to be, you're going to go change the world. I can't do it. Hey, fire's talking to you real quick. I am. You can do it. Okay. It comes in fire. What has God come in from Mount Sinai to lead the Israel, uh, Israelites uh, out of the wilderness in the promise? A flaming fire, a pillar of fire leads them. So, so fire is, I mean, Ezekiel sees flames of fire. It's one of the number one attributes that you see God described as in the Old Testament. So what's happened to the disciples this moment? Boom, fire. They're becoming the new burning bush. They're becoming the new lamp that would say, I have a covenant with you that I will never give up on this world. Do you see the purpose that fell on these disciples and what they understood? God says, I'm going to make you my image. And one of his images in the Old Testament was fire. And so the early church, when this happened, why do you think they were so empathetic and so caring and so loving the world? Because the fire of God, when he said to Abraham, no matter what you do, I will, if you... If you fail this covenant, I'll die for you. Why did the Christians die so well? Because they were that kind of fire. I'll die for Rome. I will die in such a way. They're not committed to me, but I'm committed to them. I will give everything I can to the Bay Area because the fire of God gave me everything. I'm going to give the Bay Area everything. Do you hear what I'm saying with that? That is a, whoa, what just happened in this moment in Acts 2? They're going to be that kind of fire to this region. Not only that, they're going to be the fire that brings purpose to people. They're going to speak life, and the fire spoke life. Moses, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. But the fire says, no, God is good enough. You can do it. There's some greatness in you. The world is breaking people down. We're supposed to build them up, and that's what the fire of God does. People who are lost, just like the Israelites, the fire leads them to the promise. 
can you, can you just throw out all your career ideas real quick and just say yes to what God is asking you to do and see what happens to your heart? Have a great career. Build something great. But bring the fire of God wherever you're at. Be the most loving, committed person in that room because the fire of God was committed to you when you weren't committed. The fire of God was loving you when you were actually hating it. And the world is going to hate you, but you're the fire of God, so you're going to love it why it hates you. When the breath of God comes on you, you become the fire of God. Amen? You can tell somebody about church today. Like, they told me I was the fire of God. What kind of church do you go to? Watch the whole message, okay? Don't, okay. okay, here we go. Okay, um, and then the um, uh, last one uh, I kind of already shared was the breath of God gives you vision. It gives you vision. It gives you vision. It's very simple. Uh, but the others in the crowd ridiculed them saying they're just drunk, that's all. To have that much confidence in the Greco-Roman society, and I'll just end it here and then we'll move on to the next point. <sighs> You would only speak up if you knew you had a title or a platform. And somebody would give you the title and platform, and then you would live your vision out. And these people did not get their permission for anybody. Because the world, you're waiting for somebody to give you permission to do something great. You're waiting for a title to make you great. But the Holy Spirit has given you permission to do something great and to go be something great. And that vision, they're like, hold on a second. Why, where'd you get this from? You're not wearing no badge, no title. You don't have the money. But you are walking around like you are the emperor of Rome right now with the boldness that you have. When you start to hang out with the Holy Spirit, that's the type of vision you have because you have been entrusted with the gospel. Amen? Okay, I got seven minutes and 30 seconds. And I got, uh, should I pause here and do part two next week? Or should I finish in the next 12 minutes? You pick. I think think they want me to pause. All right, I'm going to finish. I'm going to, yeah, we're going to finish. Okay. You got 10 minutes? I'll have 10 minutes. I can finish in 10 minutes. So I have seven minutes left. Are you fine? Yeah. I've read studies. Society today has the highest attention span of any society, so we're fine. <laughs> we're good. We're good. We're good. Actually, you have the attention span of a goldfish is what they say. So It's a miracle act. This is revival right now. This is a miracle that you are actually here. That's actually true. Never mind. Uh, so the boldness of Jesus. Peter shares the facts. Uh, there are three things that if you were going to preach a perfect sermon in these days. Um, the Greeks even uh, uh, landed on this. The Jews landed on this. And there were three things. You had to have the kerygma, you had to have the didache, and you had the paraklesis. Okay? Those are three things you need. Now let me just tell you what those words mean. So that was a perfect sermon. It was a perfect message. That's how they would be trained. That's how they be taught. The first thing is this. When you preach a perfect message, you got to share the facts. So here comes the first sermon ever in the, in the church. After you share the facts, you got to teach what the facts mean. That's what, that, that would be the DDK. Uh, Kerygma would be the share of the facts. And then the paralysis, sorry, that's a hard one to say, is a call to action. So now that you know the facts, and, you, and I taught you the facts, now you need to live out the facts. And so Peter comes and does all three. He just, he's a natural. His first sermon, he just nails it, okay? Let's see the call to action and the boldness that Jesus shows. He shows the facts. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you. Turn here and say, listen carefully. This part of my message is my favorite part of my message. When I started studying this part, it was piercing me for this generation in our church. There is a sickness, and this is the sermon for it. Sorry, I'm yelling. Let's keep going. <laughs> Listen carefully, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, we're in the last days, even God says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Basically what that means is it's an all-inclusive party. It didn't say, and old men will see visions and dream dreams. No, daughters will do this. It listed everybody. It says in the last days, it's an all-hands-on-deck event. And so the last day prophecy is all-hands-on-deck. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, Listen. He's like, exclamation point, listen! God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles and wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen as he prearranged the plan that was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. He's saying, hey, the cross wasn't an accident. All this God is sovereign. Okay, the cross was a plan. The sacrifice was a plan. You think the Romans killed him? No, Jesus laid his life down. Anyways, I go on. Um, With the help of the lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. Here's the facts. You killed him. Here's the facts. He was a miraculous God. He was Savior. Here's the facts. He was Jesus. 
But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life from death, could not keep him to his grips. Here are the facts. There was a man who came incarnate as the living God. Jesus, he preached the gospel. He healed the sick. And as he was doing those things, you were used by the enemy to kill him and put him on that cross. But God did not, was not surprised by this. No, no, no. He prearranged it because he knew there had to be an ultimate sacrifice. So he laid his life down and he died. But here are the facts. The grave is empty. So he lays the facts out to him. We got an empty grave. Greco-Romans did not believe in resurrection. This made no sense to them. This is a brand new statement. This is a huge fact to be, but he's like, hey, this ain't an idea. It's a fact. Study it. It's too close to Jesus' time. They, they knew that this was real. And so he says, here's the fact. Now here's the second part of my sermon. The teaching of that fact. I love uh, what uh, Martin Luther says real quick. Peace if possible. Truth at all cost. You got to preach the facts to people. People need to know the facts. Jesus is king. Well, I think, you can think that. I think the fact is that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. If you don't believe it's a fact, why would the world believe it? You got to start having a more, this is what I believe. And here's why I believe it. And here's what he's done in my life. We need some bold, fact-speaking Christians. Okay? Anyways. Uh, so he shares what it means. Now he exalted to the place of the highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, he has, uh, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see here today. Peter's words pierced their hearts. Oh, everybody say pierced. And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Oh, so they pierced their hearts. Now, because we don't live in biblical times, and a lot of us aren't scholars. Sometimes we don't really understand why Jesus had to die on the cross, why that grave had to be empty, and what he does in heaven while he's sitting on the throne. One of the primary things that Jesus is doing while he's in heaven, says in Hebrews and throughout the Bible, that he is interceding on your behalf and my behalf. That he is the one that makes sure that God the Father, because God the Father, Jesus, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, Trinity, they work perfectly together to do what they're supposed to do. It's a beautiful, glorifying thing. And so Jesus is up there in heaven, and he is pleading on your behalf, because when you sin, do you think Jesus goes up to God the Father and says, hey, Tyler sinned again, but that's my guy. Let's just let's give him a free pass. Sound good? You, know, you ever do one of these prayers? God, I will never commit this sin again. I promise today, if you, if you do, let this happen in my life, I will never do this sin again. Anybody ever pray that prayer? Oh, man, I prayed that prayer. And then what, you sinned again? Man, I sinned again. And I'm always wondering, man, Jesus, what are you saying to God at that moment? You know, he made a pretty bold decoration. <laughs> I mean, he was promising a lot of things, said he's never going to do it again. Promised it, you know, and he said if we gave him this, he'd never do it. I mean, he was going hard to the paint. Well, he sinned again. And what do you think we should do with him? You think that's what they're saying? No. The Bible shows clearly what Jesus is doing, and Jesus is a just God. God does not wink at sin. There must be somebody who pays the price. And so the just thing you see in Hebrews, I wish I had more time to unpack it, but the just thing is that Jesus comes to God and says, Tyler failed, but the price has already been paid. And your justice shows that you don't make people double pay. So my pay takes care of this one. He's good. Guess what happens tomorrow? I pay the price. Tyler's good. I pay the price. Tyler's good. I paid the price. Tyler's good. Do you ever wonder why people care so much about their looks? You ever wonder? You ever, you ever wonder why people care so much about succeeding in career? You, do you ever wonder those things? Because we know we live in a courtroom. We live in the, a courtroom where we walk into rooms and we know that verdicts are being handed out all the time wow. of how we look. Of what we, why do we care so much when people say, what have you done? Why do we care so much about if we have good kids? Because we want people to think we're great parents because the verdict's coming out. We have this desire in our soul to hear the verdict. You look good. You are good. And the verdict in heaven is being laid out every day. He's good. I pay the price. He's good. This amazing thing that Peter is saying is, here's the facts. And here's what happens from the facts. You're all good now. And when they heard that, it pierced their heart. Oh, it pierced their heart. Can I tell you real quick? Have you ever had your heart pierced? I've had my heart cut. One of the first times I ever got cut, I was in sixth grade. Oh, I hated it. I had a crush on this girl. 
And I told her I liked her, you know. I mean, I, and I prepared it. Like, I mean, I, I've always been a little romantic. I love chick flicks, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I said something super cheesy. I don't remember. I don't even want to say it. But I basically told her I liked her. And her friends literally came back with the answer. <laughs> you laugh, but when you hear it, you're going to cry. They literally said to me, why do you think she'd like you? You're ugly. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to mess a kid up. And I remember going to the mirror. Hey, at 8 a.m. when I went to school, I put on my American flag shorts and my Michael Jordan T-shirt, and I thought it looked good. It was like my best outfit in sixth grade. I was like, all right, American flag, America, you know? All right, Michael Jordan, strength, all right, you know? And, all right, I look good. I remember coming home, looking in the mirror. You were one ugly sixth grade kid. <laughs> Don't worry, I had a growth spurt. Walked up to them my sophomore year. Big mistake! Big mistake! You blew it! <laughs> in my life, I had a lot of people who cut me and pierced me. And it just made me toxic. It made me see myself terribly. The world cuts the hurt, but God cuts to heal. Oh, and he'll heal you. What do you need to be healed from? Let's look at that real quick. Here's what you need to be healed from. Here is the call to action. So he said, here's what's happening, but you need to be healed from it. So now that you are good, you should probably live good. Now that the verdict's in, you should probably change the way you live. And here's what he says. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. Everybody say crooked. crooked. Those who believed were 3,000. Stop. What were, they, what were they crooked? What's a crooked generation? What does it mean to be crooked? Here's what a crooked generation is. Myself is crooked. It's bent to me. My desires are bent to my desires. My desires are bent to whatever pleases me. I am bent to me, and because I care about me, I care about you less. And so he's saying this generation is bent towards themselves, and since they're bent towards themselves, you need to save yourself from them because when you have a bunch of narcissistic, selfish people, everybody pays the price. Save yourself from this crooked generation and become what God calls you to be. Now, I heard a pastor share this uh, week about how narcissism has skyrocketed in our culture. Like one of the studies was, you know, in the early 1980s, they would ask kids, are you a big deal? And about 12% said, I'm a big deal. Now they did the same study and they asked kids, are you a big deal? 80 something percent said, I'm a big deal. No, no, I'm just getting started. It's going to get really sad. In 1970, the switch from our narcissism level skyrocketing when it started, they went back, why is it skyrocketing? Narcissism in the 70s was around about 10 to 20%. Now it's around 70 to 80% of our nation is narcissistic. Characteristic of narcissism is self-centeredness, lack of empathy, need to be celebrated and complimented all the time. Just a handful of things that narcissists need, okay? It's called Instagram, but let's talk later, okay? Um, so, um, so in 1970, we were a factory-based uh, nation. We, a lot of people worked in factories. You are part, you're a small part of building something great. And so you, the way culture trained you is like, I'm a part of a team, we're building something, and I'm in a factory, and this is what I do. And so it's just in our culture, like, you never thought of yourself as a narcissist because you're a part of something, and you're building something. And then we went from factory-based uh, uh, nation to a customer service-based nation. It's where everything was no longer about you building something great. Everything was built to make you feel like you're great. And so from 1970 on... It started serving you and telling you, you're great, you're the best, come eat here, we love you, whatever you want, you're smart, we're stupid, what do you want? And then what happened is social media came along, and the president of social media, who now uh, resigned, this is one of his convictions, this is what he said about social media. Former Facebook president, Sean Parker, says, who was quoted as follows, it's a social validation feedback loop. It's exploiting human psychology, and we implemented it consciously. So basically what's happened in our society is that 70 to 80% of people think that they need to be celebrated all the time. 70 to 80% of people have a lack of empathy now because they care about themselves more than anything else. It's about me, myself, and I, and what I think is right, I do. Uh, there's a self-centered uh, uh, group right now that's basically saying, if you don't care about me and you don't celebrate me, then you don't love me. If you don't feed my narcissism, you don't love me. So let me read you a translation I wrote of what Peter's saying. Save yourself from this generation that must be worshipped. 
The world says you must be worshiped to feel good. The gospel says you must worship God to be made good. Okay, so that's the first part. Save yourself from this generation that thinks they're a big deal. I take myself so seriously in this culture, everybody does. Coach says, you're a big deal. Gospel says, God's a big deal. One's going to make you healthy. One's going to make you toxic. Another thing, save yourself from this generation that cares more for themselves than anyone else. This self-centered generation that loves themselves some me. I love me some me on Instagram. And Instagram is the reason why it's skyrocketed if you read the studies is because you don't even have to build a great self anymore. You just have to portray a great self. And then the, 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 the dopamine hit that when somebody likes it and celebrates this great self, you don't even become who you are anymore. You become a fake person of yourself and you never live out your purpose. This is such a toxic thing that our culture has and they need to be saved from it. We need to be saved from it. Now, do you understand why it's such a big deal in even Roman times? They were so empathetic. Here's why narcissism is so bad for society. Empathy underlies virtually everything that makes society work, like trust, collaboration, love, charity. Failure to empathize is a key part of most social problems. Crime, violence, war, racism, child abuse, political differences, and inequality, to name just a few. Dr. Bruce B. Perry, a behavioral science professor. Um, bottom line, I've seen you on Instagram. You're not nice all the time. Guilty. Same. You see me on the roads, I'm not nice all the time. Honk, honk, get out the way, okay? Okay? You guys got 10 more minutes? I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Worship team, worship team come up, worship team come up. Uh, I'll finish with this. So you have the breath of God, the boldness of God, and when you have the breath of God and the boldness of God, it creates the beauty of God. And what I mean by that is, in Acts uh, 2.42, you'll see this amazing time. And I'm, I just have you read when you get home, just to save time. But it basically talks about all the believers devoted themselves to the teaching, fellowship. They're sharing meals. A deep sense of awe came all over them. The apostles performed many miraculous signs. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. And it finished with, and all the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of people. Uh, translation says they looked good. That's the, they looked good to the world, the favor with the world. They looked goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being uh, saved. Um, I uh, was a youth pastor for nine years. And I, um, <laughs> I would have to do dating workshops sometimes at these youth things. And, you know, it just it was crazy. Like, as I was a youth pastor, each year I just would see kids' value and the way they see themselves become less and less and less. And they just need more and more validation. And they, they felt like they didn't look one certain way in the world. They were the ugly one. And it just, you know, transitioned from here to there, you know. And, and so in one of my workshops I would do sometimes with the kids is I would have the girls write down their dream guy on a piece of paper. So, you know, be a few hundred girls, write down your dream guy. And then a few hundred guys, write down your dream girl. And the purpose of me writing, uh, having them do this was I would have, I would want to read them because I'd want each girl to hear that in that group of guys, that there was a guy in that room that thought they were beautiful. Now, bear with me. This is going to make sense, I promise. Um, I realized at a young age, I'm not a 10 for everybody, but I'm a 10 for somebody. Thank you, Rachel, Okay. That sixth grade girl lost her chance. Okay, anyways. Um, so I would, I would read, you know, uh, you know, when the girls would write down their favorite things in a guy, dream guy, I'd say, this girl wrote, she likes a blonde-haired guy uh, with blue eyes. And all the blonde-haired guys are like, yeah, you know. I'm like, relax, guys, you know. And then the next one, about guy. this one likes, she likes a short, brown-haired guy that's funny, you know. And then everyone's like, that's just like you, Todd. That's just like you. And Todd's like, what girl wrote this? I need stand up. I'm right here. Brown hair, short, funny, you know. And we always, we always had like, it would, be, it would be like a ruckus in the room, you know. And then I'd read for the girls, you know. And the, so I'd be, the first guy, I'd be like, you know, this girl loves girls with brown hair and brown eyes. And then all the girls were like, woo! You know, the girls are high-fiving, you know. And then the next one would be like, the ones would be like, I love a blonde hair, tall, da-da-da girl. You know, like, ah! You know, and then another one would be like, I love a girl with blue hair and plays Guitar Hero. And I'm like, that is way too, like, specific. <laughs> there was a girl in the camp that had blue hair. I'm like, just tell the girl, okay? Just go tell her, whoever this was. And at the end of it, like, it was crazy. Like, I remember we'd always, like, see him go to lunch. And every youth kid at, at, at lunch, like, at least for 20 minutes until the world just set in again. You know, but for 20 minutes, every, everybody's like, man, I am somebody's 10. You know, they're just walking around, you know, cockadoo doing, you know, a little bit. Like, and, you know, girls are like, I'm beautiful for the first time. You're like, that's just fantastic, okay? So um, 
If I had our church survey, hey, write down what makes the church beautiful. Write, you write down. And I would write pieces of paper. Somebody would write up and be like, the church is beautiful when it has doctrine. I love a teaching church. Give me a teaching church. It's a good answer. Another one of you would write, you know what makes the church beautiful? Vibrant worship. That's what makes the church beautiful. You know, no, no, no. What makes the church beautiful is a community church. I like fellowship. Give me that fellowship. That's a beautiful church. No, 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 no. You know what makes church beautiful? Uh, a church that cares for the poor and cares about social issues. That, that, that's a beautiful church. The reality is, is all those are right answers. The reality is the church is not your bride. It's Jesus' bride. And he chose the whole package. If you chose a pretty church, she'd be lacking. Some of you prefer just teaching. But Jesus prefers teaching and vibrant worship. Another one that's in this, this there's five of them. Aggressive evangelism, a church that evangelizes. That's a beautiful church. There's five things that marks a beautiful church and why the church became so beautiful in Rome and why the world was so, oh, to them. They had a depth of teaching. They had great teaching. Another way you could say they had absolute truth. Rome was struggling with truth. There was no more truth anymore. Everything was just subjective, you know. There was just no, like, oh, what, what, what do you believe? And Christians came in and said, this is the facts he is my God. There was great teaching. There was a depth of theological teaching. There was an amazing uh, passion for worship. There was vibrant worship. They worshiped every day, but there was vibrant worship. There was intimate relationship. Oh, they had real community, like friendships that people wanted in their life. There was vibrant relationship. There was aggressive evangelism. People were kept on just talking about Jesus all the time. Man, these people love Jesus. Last but not least, what made it beautiful was they had social concern. They were big on compassion. That's why we do all the things we do. That's why we have Mission Cares. We have a Serve Day coming in September. That's why we build houses at Homes of Hope. That's why we give money away every month because all five of those makes the church really beautiful. That's what kind of church we're going to be. We bow your heads. Lord, we love you. Oh, we thank you that you're the one that makes your house what it is. We thank you for your breath. Oh, we thank you for the boldness that you give us. We thank you that you're the thing that makes everything beautiful. Oh, God, we love you. Oh, we love you so much. Lord, with every head bowed and I close, I'm going to ask a simple question. You've never said yes to Jesus. The Bible's very clear that there needs to be a response. Confess your mouth, believe your heart. The way we do that, you raise your hand, and then we're all going to pray together. But if something was happening in your heart today, there's something tugging on your heart, you want to say yes to heaven, no to hell, yes to blessing, no to curtain. If that's you, with every head bowed and I close, you want to say yes to Jesus. Raise your hand, catch my eye. On the count of three. One, two, three. Raise it up, raise it high. I see you, and I see you. Come on now. If you want to say yes to heaven, no to hell, great decision. I see you in the back. God bless you. I see you. Yes. Come on. Oh, God, we thank you for the people that said yes to you. Come on, big old clap, big celebration. We never take that for granted. Oh, God, we thank you. Yes, God, yes. Will you stand up? We're going to pray. And I'm going to hand it off to Caroline. We've got a lot of things. We've got people praying in the back. If you need some prayer, man, do not pass up on prayer. It's one of the most powerful things you can have done for you. Oh, it's so good. But you just got to say we want to pray a prayer with you. Just repeat after me. Jesus, Jesus. come into my life today. I declare. I'm a sinner, and you are my Savior. I say goodbye to my past, and hello to my promises. And everybody said? Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.